Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Play. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week, we recapped the first week of the Australian Open, and this week, we'll be going over the second half of the tournament. Yeah, so uh, picking up where we left off last week, let's go through our pick see where we were right and what matches we were wrong on. So for me, the big ones that I was impressed with myself on was that I got gorgeous, upsetting Dimitrov and Nori beating Rude, but I did miss on Paul Greekspor Deminar and City Pass. What about you? Which ones did you get? Yeah, so I also missed on uh, Tommy Paul and Deminar. I don't know how you got Nori right because I was so confident and rude, but that was one I missed. Uh, congrats on that. And then uh, Kazo and Fritz, which I was actually pretty pumped about because those are two of my like kind of dark horse picks where obviously Kazo I just kind of picked from a momentum swing. And then Fritz, I don't know. That was just a kind of a gut feeling so go with the american um, yeah go with the american exactly yeah i don't know how i got that dimitrov versus borges one though <laughs> i oh, was dude. like time on court it's gonna play a factor <laughs> yeah i know all right uh let's just jump right into the third round here i just kind of wanted to focus on the matches that like really stood out to us we don't have to go through like every match that happened because some of them it's like you really expected Alcaraz to win his match, and it wasn't really anything that special. But uh, starting off with Tommy Paul, like we talked about, uh, got upset by Ketsmanovich. It was a close match, five-setter, but it really seemed like Tommy kind of got mentally broken after he lost that fourth set. And then in that fifth set, it was just 6-0 domination. I know, and I was so confident in Tommy. I bet on him three separate times. So before the match, I had him at like negative odds, I think like minus 180. And then he dropped the first set and then he turned positive. It was like, oh, plus 180. So then I bet him again. And then he dropped a break in the second set. And then he went up like plus 210 and I bet him again. I'm like, let's go. Let's ride, Tommy. Yeah. And then uh, ended up winning the next two sets. Yeah. In that fourth set, you were out. feeling real good. <laughs> I was feeling great. I was feeling so greedy. I'm like, hey, you know, I could cash out for like a 100% return or I could just let it ride. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so it was pretty stressful because that was one of the matches I actually watched from like full beginning all the way to end. Well, not quite till the end. Once it was five, I was like, turned it off. You're but, like, this um, isn't gonna, this isn't no, gonna turn actually, around for Tommy. Yeah, yeah, super upset. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was Ketsmanovich just kind of playing into Tommy's, you know, lack of. How do I put this? I feel like Tommy Paul plays better when he's on the move, like on the run. Like he doesn't really do well in just a sitting back and forth rally. Yeah, well, I mean, Gil kind of brought this up when he was talking about Tommy Paul versus Taylor Fritz. And he was like, Tommy Paul has all the athleticism to be that top guy, but doesn't necessarily have the same level of racket skill. And then it's like Taylor Fritz is almost the opposite, has the racket skill to be in those rallies and and win points and set up points but doesn't necessarily have the same level of movement that Tommy has. So like, yeah, like you were saying, Tommy can out athleticism someone if it gets into that situation, but if it's just a rally, he doesn't necessarily have that uh, racket ability. Yeah. I think we saw it here. And I think it's Manovich. The reason he went down two sets wasn't because of 
Tommy Paul just outplaying him. I think he was making a lot of mistakes. And then once he tightened up and kind of just did his thing, like his forehand got into rhythm. He was able to kill the ball. And I think that's just what we saw here at the end. Yeah. I mean, speaking of letting someone beat themselves, Kazo uh, upsetting Greek Spore, like that match wasn't even close. It was 6 3, 6 3, 6 1 for Kazo. But it didn't really seem like Kazo did anything that special in the match. He kind of just let Greek Spore beat himself. Mm-hmm. And he was very comfortable just playing defense. And then when he was on serve, he had a very strong serve, or he has a very strong serve. So, it was a great run by him, but he didn't do anything that crazy. He just played very solid defense, it looked like, and let Greek Sport beat himself. Yeah, so how would you compare this match uh, to his his match with Bruno? Like, when you're a player that young and that unknown, you there's really two ways to go about it. Like, you know, go in, nothing to lose, take risks, uh, just kind of awe the crowd, or take the Gazo approach where you're nice and slow and steady and then just kind of outlast the opponent. Yeah, like you said, it can be on – both ends of the extreme. And I think for him, it really worked in this tournament to play within himself and not go for anything insane. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of upsets, how about Dimitrov losing to Borges? Yeah. I mean, I was harping on time on court in the last episode and I, I think it was evident here. Borges was very fresh. He played like only three set matches to this point. And I still think it was really shocking because obviously Dimitrov played really well at the end of last year, made that final in Paris and then won his first tournament this year. And then all of a sudden comes out here and loses to a guy that's really an unknown and gorgeous. Yeah. I'm shocked too. And I really think you are going somewhere with this time on court because yeah, like you said, Dimitrov has been playing in top shape, but uh, he hasn't really been exposed with the Grand Slam, the best out of five. And I think since he is up there in age that we can kind of count him out for any Grand Slam in the future, but he'll still be a contender in the uh, the ATP Tour tournaments. Yeah. Moving on to uh, the other upset, Rude, losing to Nori. My justification for the pick was just based on how Rudy played in the tournament so far, he played really well in that first round match, dominated. But then in his second round, he had that five-setter with Purcell, and it made his game to me look a lot weaker, and it made him look very beatable. Even though he pulled off the win in that match, he looked like he could have lost to Purcell. And with Nori being, I'd say, a better player than Purcell overall, I think Nori kind of had an opening there to get the win. I think that's a great take. And I think that I just didn't even notice because I'm so invested in Rude. Like, I think I made an emotional decision that I just kind of told myself, yeah, he's going to win. He's going to win. But yeah, you're so right. You kind of saw the writing on the wall during that Purcell match, like how he was going to perform. I don't want to spend too much time on it because this does make me sad. But I just feel like Nori was executing so well at the net. Like, he was definitely exposing Rude's far back stance. And I think when your opponent just kind of dominates you at the net, like Nori was dominating Rude, it gets demoralizing because a lot of those points, you're not even getting to the ball. It's like hitting against the wall, you know, and you're just stunned. And it's exactly what we talked about last week with Purcell, because one of the things we brought up about that match was that if Purcell had performed a little bit better at the net, he could have easily won the match. And Nori just (laughs) seemed like he almost just took that blueprint and applied it and was like, I just know that I'm going to perform well at the net. 
And he did. He probably practiced it a little bit more too mm-hmm. in the build up to the match. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. But uh, moving on to the fourth round. So we had first up Fritz beating Sitsipas, which you obviously called. I was kind of surprised by this, but really Fritz was just playing very well, in my opinion. And it seems like of the Americans, he is the guy where he consistently performs to the level that he is kind of expected to as a top 10 level guy, like the number one American player, because he's made it through to the quarterfinal. You like look at the U.S. Open last year, made it exactly to the quarterfinals, played Djokovic, lost. And it's like he's not expected to really do better than that, but it still kind of feels bad that he's not getting any massive runs. You know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. And you can kind of say on the contrary, like Stefanos too. Like he, it's not like he's regressing, but I feel like you obviously thought Sitsipas, I thought Fritz, but my rationale for Fritz was just, you know, he's an American. They're both pretty evenly matched. But I truly think that Sitsipas has a more talented forehand, but I think his backhand is just the weakest part of his game. And it's starting to become an issue for him on on tour like i think he has the most miss hits out of anyone yeah i just think sitsipas he has a really high ceiling but his floor is slightly lower than some of the other guys Mm -hmm. yeah no i agree so how about Djokovic and manorino oh my god that That was uh not a fun match for manorino jesus Djokovic just absolutely beat him down left Left no quarter for Manorino. Didn't even get a game until that third set, 6-0, 6-0 in those first two. It's just such a tough moment for Manorino because he's been playing so well recently. Like, he's been playing the best tennis of his career. He's at, like, his career high ranking. And then he comes up against Djokovic, and Djokovic is just like, yeah, it doesn't matter what level you're at. You're still not even close to, like, the top guys. Oh, I know, I know. And that was a pretty funny match because it was one of the earlier night games, like at 10.30 or something. And the party I was at, I actually was able to put it on the TV. Like there's a football game going on at the same time and they had two TVs. Like it was one of those, uh, you know, ultra sports apartments. Like there was a third TV hanging on the side. So we had tennis and football on and all my friends are like, oh, wow, is this usually how like tennis goes? Because they have no clue. And I'm like, no, this is actually You're like, no, yeah, no, it's six oh six oh. This is crazy because they're like, this why guy's you, getting whooped. Yeah, they're like, why do you want to watch? It's a blowout. I'm like, yes, that's a good point, but this could be three bagels. That would be insane, like a perfect game. And I know Djokovic said that he kind of wanted Manorino to get a game just to get the pressure off because it's a lot of pressure trying to have a perfect match, like three bagels, a three bagel set. Yeah, I think he also probably wanted him to get one so that Manorino didn't just have that shame of getting absolutely just embarrassed out. There. I mean, he he did get embarrassed, but like if it had been just 606060, that would have been really yeah. bad for him. Oh yeah, I feel like Manorino is the type of player that'll take that in stride too. Like, you know, he did seem like he was uh, having fun with it when he when he won that yeah. one game. Like, yeah. he was joking, kind of laughing about it. Because he knew at that point, like, I'm not going to win this match. Oh, my God. He's such a funny guy. Like, when the the people I was with were watching this match, and they're like, how is that guy a professional athlete? <laughs> like, they just, you know, looking at him, he doesn't look like. Yeah, because the skill is just so insane. Yeah, no, I know. All right, should we move on? 
Yeah, Rublev versus Deminar. We both went for the underdog pick here in our pickup. Yeah. In the end, didn't really work out for us, but it was an exciting match because Rublev obviously took that first set, and then Deminar took the next two in two tie breaks. So really, that has to be such an intense mental toll for Rublev because obviously so close in both of those sets, and then you go into the third set and it's, all that matters is that it's a 2-1 score. But Rublev was able to kind of just battle back, and I don't know where the energy came from, but he dominated those last two sets, 6-3, 6-0, and took the match over. Yeah, and I think this was a very mature moment for Rublev because you're kind of seeing him, usually when he goes through this type of adversity, he kind of breaks down and then just deteriorates. But now he's kind of taking a playbook out of Medvedev, Djokovic, their playbook, and really taking in this adversity and using it as, like you said, he you don't know where the energy came from. You just kind of became a different person. And that's what propelled him forward. So I think if he can keep on doing that, he might turn into one of those players that whenever he's down, whenever something happens, like he'll he's able to harness and use that energy to come back. 100%. Did you see Deminar's around the net shot in that match? Rublev hit a net shot and the thing's like bouncing and it goes right next to the post and Deminar let it, go maybe like an inch away from the ground just flicked it with his wrist completely around the court like around the net i mean rublev was just stunned like he was actually yelling i don't know what he was saying but he was so pissed i feel like when that happens to you you just kind of have to like applaud or do something to honor don't get pissed yeah well i mean that's just rublev yeah that's rublev all right what's next here zverev hung on to a really tight match against nori i mean five sets again for zverev and second tiebreak decider of the tournament so incredibly close match here yeah yeah that was a good good match and moving on to the uh quarterfinals so uh final eight here medvedev versus Herkatch. Incredible match, really close, five-setter. To me, this was an interesting match because Medvedev looked so gassed at the end of the fourth set, and he was up a break, and then he lost two out of three service games to lose the set. You were kind of like, that looks like it's just going to swing Hercatch's way, and somehow he was able to like stabilize in the fifth and ended up pulling off the dub. Yeah, no, I know. That was pretty back and forth. Next up, we had a center, like I said, beat Rublev in three. Still had yet to lose a set at this point. So really just showed that if he's playing at the level he was in this tournament, he can dominate anybody. And another thing is kind of like we've talked about in the past, Rublev, it still seems like he needs to take a step up to be close to that top four level. I don't see Rublev even coming close to beating any of those top four guys. Like, maybe he can pull it off if they have a bad day, but if they're both playing at, like, a standard level for both of them, like, say they both play 90%, the likelihood Rublev wins is so small. Yeah, I think he needs to employ a different strategy. Like, remember, I've been saying it all all year that Rublev just kind of sits back too much and doesn't finish out points when, when he can, and... Dude, center, they can both blow the ball past each other, so it's fun watching that. Just kind of uh, two guys, young, um, two of the most powerful forehands on tour, too, just battling it out. Yeah, 100%, just pounding it from the baseline. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, next match, Djokovic beat Fritz in four. This match was interesting because it looked pretty competitive for the first two sets, but then Djokovic kind of just pulled away and – Exactly like I said earlier, Fritz did what he was expected to do, but not much more. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I can, I agree with you there. I kind of just expected this outcome. Like going into the Fritz Sitsipas match, you're excited. You're like, oh, Fritz has a chance to win. But going in here, I was just kind of like, well, well, dude, you had a good tournament quarterfinal. Speaking of that, do you think Fritz can leave Australia with his head held high? Like he should be happy with these results? I think he's probably actually really unhappy with it because really, when you look at it, U.S. Open had the same result. And between August, September, when the U.S. Open is, and now he's still in the exact same place relative to everyone else. Like he's probably improved, but everybody improves, right? Mm -hmm. So he's looking at a game. He's like, I probably spent so much time working on my game, working on all this stuff, and I still went out in the same round to the same guy. I feel like he can sometimes probably feel like he's stagnating a little bit. Oh, definitely. I'm sure he's he's very hard on himself. But to be honest, man, I mean, I didn't have that high of expectations of him going in. So I feel like a quarterfinal run losing to Djokovic, you know, good start to the year. That's all you can say. Yeah, I think it's right? one of those situations like we've talked about. Fans can be happy with how mm -hmm. he did. He's yeah. not happy with it. No, 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 definitely. And then the uh, last one was Zverev. Just kind of stunning Alcaraz in four sets. I think he just jumped all over him early in those first two sets. And Alcaraz was just a little bit unprepared for it, I think. Then Alcaraz in that third set looked like he might stabilize, ended up taking it. But Zverev was just playing some great tennis and ended up uh, getting it done in that fourth set. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm very surprised that Zverev was able to close out this match because it seemed like after... Alcaraz got that third set that the momentum had just completely shifted towards him. And he's one of those guys where if he's down two sets, you can you can expect to come back or at least make it a match. And the fact that he was just playing lights out, making these incredible shots, the crowd was getting behind him. Because obviously, you know, not only does he have a good crowd following at these tournaments, but the crowd wants to see more tennis. You know, they pay all this money for tickets. They don't want to see a three-set match. So he definitely had the crowd behind him, and I think that was helping a lot because he was getting the energy. You know, he really feeds into it. You could see he has a good time out there. And credit to Zverev for just kind of squashing that momentum and just getting it done. Yeah, I think Alcaraz is one of the maybe best players on the tour of feeding off of the crowd. Like you said, like he takes that energy and it helps him swing the momentum in his direction. Mm -hmm. Like when the crowd is all on his side, all of a sudden, even if he's down, it can feel like he's winning the match because of how he plays into the crowd. Right, right, I know. Dude, that was some of the best tennis I've seen like thus far, and I feel like this is reassuring because this still means that tennis is wide open. Like, you know, we thought that Alcaraz was going to kind of come in and dominate after his performance last year, and Zverev has beaten him now twice. He beat him in the finals, and remember when he was asked about it, he was kind of like, Guys, I, you know, I've beaten good players before. He was kind of saying, hey, I'm here too. I'm expected to win. So, honestly, I like that. I kind of like Alcaraz losing to Zverev here. Yeah. I think another thing about this is, like, Zverev's about to push past Rublev, and then it's going to be a top five guys where you're kind of looking at them like, these guys could all maybe beat each other. And Rublev's gatekeeping is just going to go down to maybe sixth. And he's going to be protecting the top five now instead of being in the top five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, what do you think? What are your thoughts that you didn't see Djokovic or Alcaraz in the slam final? Well, I think we'll get into that after uh, we talk about the semifinals, which we're going to talk about right now. So uh, All right. 
Sinner versus Djokovic. I mean, a pretty highly anticipated match, I think, because obviously end of last year, Sinner beat him for the first time, and then Djokovic won the ATP Finals championship, but then Sinner beat him in the Davis Cup, and so it seemed like it was going to be a pretty tight match here, and Sinner ended up just coming out and beating Djokovic in four sets, actually held a break match point in that third set tiebreak, didn't get it done, but he was able to come out in that fourth set and didn't seem like that having that match point affected him at all. He didn't feel any pressure after having a match point. He just came out and played like he had been in the first three sets. And to me, it was honestly pretty similar to the Zverev versus Alcaraz match because Zverev in that match came out firing and Alcaraz didn't seem like he was necessarily prepared for it. Same thing here. Sinner came out and just killed Djokovic in those first two sets. And then Djokovic kind of settled in in that third. And then Sinner was still able to just outplay him in that fourth set. And Djokovic said after the match, this was one of the worst matches, like Grand Slam matches he's ever played. And I don't think that's necessarily even a knock on Sinner because obviously Sinner played great, but I also think Djokovic played not very well. Yeah, no, I see I see what you're saying. I agree with I agree with what you said. I think it's funny Djokovic just even bringing up like, "Oh yeah, I'm so shocked by my performance in a bad way. Like I've never played this bad before." At least he did credit Sinner too. I don't know. I mean, I think it's just Djokovic Maybe it was playing Sinner like it was the Sinner of a year ago, but yeah. Sinner just wasn't overhitting it. He was willing to, rather than just go for winners, he was willing to force errors out of Djokovic, which isn't something you can do very often since Djokovic usually doesn't make that many errors. But Djokovic kind of fell onto his back foot and just uh, ended up losing the match. Yeah, sloppy match on Djokovic's part, but yeah. Um, and then... Uh, the other semifinal rivalry match between Medvedev and Zverev. Zverev up two sets, came out real strong in those first two, but then Zverev just stopped breaking Medvedev's serve. Because after that second set, there were almost 30 games without a break of serve for either player. And so Medvedev ended up taking two sets in tie breaks. And wow. unlike how Rublev was able to deal with that, those two tie break uh, sets, and end up coming back after that and win his match against Deminar, I think that was just too much for Zverev and uh, Medvedev ended up getting it done in that fifth. Yeah, another five-setter from Medvedev. So we'll see how that plays out. I'll, uh, I'll have more to say on this uh, later in the segments when we get to match of the week. Because, yeah, like you said, man, I love this rivalry. So definitely uh, put that on my calendar to watch. Yeah. But, I mean, like you said, with uh, the time on court, Sinner versus Medvedev in that final. All the buildup for this match was talking about time on court. Look at Sinner's momentum. But he's also never played in a Grand Slam final. Medvedev, this is his third Australian Open final. And you kind of feel like that experience is going to play a role. And I think in the end, when you look at the result, it went how maybe you could have expected it to go based on the preview of it. Because... Sinner came out. I think he had some nerves because it was a Grand Slam final. It was his first time in a Grand Slam final. And I think it was the first time in the whole tournament he felt a bunch of nerves. Obviously, there's some nerves playing someone like Djokovic, but he'd beaten him twice at the end of last year. So there's a lot less nerves for that. But first Grand Slam final comes out in those first two sets. And I think just played a little bit of ten, little bit tentative, 
and Medvedev ended up taking those first two. But then Sinner kind of settled in, and simultaneously Medvedev, who had played six more hours uh, than Sinner had going into that final, starts to just lose more and more energy. He's just so exhausted from this two weeks of tennis that he's played. And all of a sudden, the momentum starts to shift just because Medvedev's energy is going down. Sinner's is kind of rising. And all of a sudden, Sinner starts to build momentum, starts to build momentum, wins the third, wins the fourth, ends up taking it in that fifth set. And it's just a tough thing for Medvedev because obviously this is the second time in an Australian Open he's led by two sets and ended up losing the match. Yeah, well, he, at least he did get a record this tournament. Uh, player with the longest time on court ever at an Australian Open. Yeah, I think that that's one of those records where <laughs> he's like, I died 100% give that record up immediately to actually win oh. the tournament. Oh, easy, yeah. Oh, man, dude. I, I just feel like, so Medvedev, you know how he came out pretty aggressive, like you said? It was kind of a little bit of center playing tentatively, but also Medvedev did come out and play a lot more aggressive than he normally does in the beginning. And it's got to be because he just kind of figured, I'm not going to last five sets. I need to just come out quick, come out firing. Because you know how he usually hangs back for the serves? He was taking center serves within the baseline. Yeah, I think that also was, that was also, I think, a strategy he employed against her catch mm -hmm. and saw some uh, success with it. And so he was like, maybe I'll just try this against Sinner because I think a lot of guys have been realizing, hey, if I just play Medvedev's my serve and Medvedev takes it really deep, I can just serve and volley this. And mm -hmm. you saw that a couple of times when Medvedev did take a step back, Sinner just stepped into it and serve and volleyed and it was way too easy for him, it looked like. Yeah, exactly. So I asked you this before with another player, but do you think that this was a successful tournament for Medvedev? I don't, think, didn't win the I don't think there's any any way it was successful for him. I think he went you into don't the, think a... in the tournament. I, I, I think he went into the, this tournament, and the only way it was successful for him was if he won the Australian Open because he's made it to the final before. He's come as close as you can get in the past to winning it. The only thing that I think was a success for him would be if he won the tournament. All right. Yeah, I I disagree. I think the fact that he he was a runner-up was good for him because I think Djokovic and Alcaraz were both expected to win. I don't think he – I mean, I think he had a chance, but I, I didn't expect him to win. So I think starting the year off right is – Yeah, I mean, I guess based on seeding, he's the third seed. He's not expected to win the tournament, but mm – -hmm. If you look at it from his perspective, he's been a runner-up before. He doesn't care if he's runner-up again. I think the only may way it maybe would have been successful for him being the runner-up would have been if by making the final, he had become the world number one. All right, so do you think that for a player who hasn't won a Grand Slam to be a runner-up, do you think that would be a success? Like if Rublev or, I don't know, Fritz? If Rublev or Fritz had made the final, I think it would have been a success for them because they've never made it that far. And yeah. if you look at the draw, it would have meant that, what, Rublev beat Sinner and then Zverev, two very solid wins. And on the other side, it would have meant that Fritz beat Djokovic and then uh, Sinner. I think I just looked too much into how he treated the press conference and his um, runner-up speech. Like, I feel like he was just kind of like, you know, not super bummed. Like, he wasn't crying. He wasn't just completely disheveled. He made He cracked some jokes. He was yeah. lighthearted. He's like, yeah, you know, I did what I did, but I think come out with it. I think he was able to do that because he's been there in the past. And yeah. so he's like, yeah, 
I mean, I know what this feels like already to be this close and lose, but I don't think that means that he considers it to be a success. It's mm, fair. All right, let's hop into segments. Sounds good. What's no, what's new in tennis? What'd you see this week? I saw an article about Zverev getting domestic abuse charges to him. I'm not going to get too in the weeds here because these are just allegations, but the reason it's a hot topic now is because the court had set a date for when he was uh, or when the trial was to happen. Uh, his trial is going to be May 31st, and the deal is it's eight non-consecutive days with the last one being July 19th which think about it, that's right in Grand Slam season. So there's going to be a huge distraction for him, uh, French Open into Wimbledon. And there's a lot of controversy around it because he was just elected into um, like the ATP governing body for players to make decisions on behalf of other players. And a lot of people are saying like, they're criticizing the ATP for first not really doing anything. And you know, kind of being upset that the fact that a player who's representing them has these, you know, terrible domestic abuse charges against them. So, yeah, it's just some unfortunate news. Yeah, I mean, I think these these allegations have been uh, around for a while. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's it's relevant right now because they scheduled the, the court date. But for the ATP, it's kind of a wait and see sort of situation. I think they don't want to act too harshly while these are still just allegations. I think once the court case is over, if it, there is uh, sufficient evidence to find him guilty, then the action against him will be swift and just by the ATV probably. Yeah. So this is actually the opposite of how other sports leagues handle these kind of charges. Like, you know how MLB, NFL, NBA, they kind of take action right away and suspend the player without even like really doing the due diligence. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a famous football player, mm -hmm. Sean Oakman that could have been, maybe benefited by a, uh, a wait and see sort of, mm -hmm. uh, like innocent and self-proven guilty. Yeah. Right? Innocent and self-proven guilty. Exactly. Because he was this football player at Baylor that was projected to be a first round pick in the NFL draft, make millions of dollars. And he got accused of sexual assault, I think. Then a couple of years later, it was proven that the allegations were false. And by that point, he obviously had missed out on millions of dollars being in the NFL. But there's nothing that re can really be done to fix that at that point. So I think obviously this is a terrible thing if it's true. But there is a level where you kind of have to be innocent until the court decides that you're guilty. Yeah, definitely. And Zverev has come out and said that he is innocent, that these are baseless claims. So it, it'll it be something we'll keep track of. Um, it's not going to really be amounting to anything until the summer, but we'll keep you guys posted. Yeah. Little right, lighter news. <laughs> Little lighter news. Uh, Bopana yeah. and Ebden won the Australian Open, and uh, Rohan Bopana became the oldest player to not only be the number one doubles player in the world, but uh, he also became just the oldest player to win a doubles Grand Slam. So I remember last year, he was the oldest doubles player to win a Masters of 1000 event. Now the oldest to win a Grand Slam is just like that that next step. So pretty cool uh, for him. Yeah, that is cool. Congrats to him. Yeah. Let's uh, move on to bet of the week. I went for uh, Oscar Ott uh, plus 200 over Lloyd Harris. Ott is a guy that I recognize the name. Obviously, he's a good player. 
kind of coming back off an injury. And I think if he's healthy at this point, this is his first match of the year, it's at least going to be a good match against Harris. And I think it warrants the bet, given that he is a pretty sizable underdog plus 200. Yeah. Wow. I like that bet. That's pretty surprising. Plus 200. Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm taking that all day. Um, so I'm taking Shapovalov Bublik over two and a half sets at plus 120. Mm. So, yeah, pretty interesting because Shapovalov, he's coming back from injury, but he played lights out against Gaston yesterday. I kind of dominated him. And Bublik's a solid player. Bublik is, you know, I see him, in my opinion, as being one of the favorites in this tournament to win it. So I feel like since, you know, both are great right now, uh, serving well, I think it could just be a tight match that'll go back and forth and we'll see a deciding set. So that's my rationale. Uh, yeah, I think I think we'll see uh, if Shapovalov can deal with Bublik's mind games and mm-hmm. some underarm serves, hitting some some crazy mix-ups, and we'll see if Shapo can, uh, can maintain his cool head. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he did it against Gaston. Gaston was trying some shit too. <laughs> yeah. But I think so, Bub- Bublik is the master oh, of that, right? Oh, my God. I, yeah, I've seen him. I think he did a full game of underarm serves one time. <laughs> yeah. Just crazy. He's, he's insane. He's like, they'll never expect it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Already Match of the week. What would you go for for this? Yeah, so we touched on this earlier, but I went with the Zverev-Medvedev match. You know, I'm not going to get too much into it because we did touch on it, but it is one of my favorite rivalries. I love seeing them on the same side of the draw because I feel like they do have a lot of drama. And I don't know if you watched Point Break, but I watched it recently and there was a whole feature on Zverev and he was kind of touching on Medvedev, you know, crediting him being the one of the best players in the world, but then also saying that he tends to play a little unfairly and that like when he lost in the French Open first round that it was karma coming towards him so i feel like there was a lot of uh energy built up there but i feel like medvedev you know this was a great match because he was just able to outlast zverev you know zverev um i think was sick he mentioned he was being he didn't feel too well but um a couple crazy i guess moments um one being in the fourth set tiebreaker zverev had the chance to serve out the match uh the score was 5-4 but then Medvedev had this pretty crazy, like lucky. He even said it was lucky drop shot return that just like barely went over the net. Pretty much impossible for Zverev to get, which just totally changed the tide of the match. Because after that, Medvedev went on to win that set. He won and won the tiebreaker, and just continued on to win the match. And at that point, Zverev was just kind of like. Like I said, he was feeling sick. He had just played a five-setter the night before, so he wasn't really feeling too well. Uh, great match, though. Yeah, it's crazy how one point can kind of like just mm-hmm. flip a mental switch in someone's head like, oh, my God, they're getting even that shot, and all of a sudden yeah. you're negative rather than positive. Yeah, well, just in the fact how much luck has in sports, you know, like that was just a crazy because it kind of hit the frame of his racket and like – barely went over medvedev was like yeah i mean i'm not gonna lie to you it was lucky yeah 100 100 yeah. all right what uh, about your match of the week i went with uh my my boy deminar versus rublev obviously deminar didn't get it done but like i said rublev i think really showed just that impressive mentality given that sometimes he hasn't shown that <laughs> and uh 
yeah, he won two five setters this tournament. So a, a great job for him. No real implosions. But uh, I think uh, Deminar always makes the match exciting to watch just because he, he makes you beat him. He doesn't really uh, tend towards playing an overly aggressive match like we maybe saw with Runa losing early where he made a bunch of errors and that's really why he lost. Deminar really tends to lose only when the player outperforms it. Mm-hmm. yeah great to see him in front of his home crowd too because i feel like he's just so fun to watch and then when you have the crowd who also gets into it you can even get into it watching on your couch just so explosive 100 all right and that's the show if you're not already subscribed go ahead and hit that subscribe button you can find us on instagram tiktok youtube at painting lines podcast Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.